God is good. Well, I think you have some questions. I want to dismiss the class, though. We're um, going to be training um, volunteers for the healing room that we're going to be launching in just a couple of weeks. And so uh, some of you have gotten emails and invitations. So if you're here to be trained for the healing room, which will be um, functional on Wednesday nights, it'll be ministering to folks on Wednesday nights. So while we're teaching in here and the youth and the children and everybody else doing what they do, we're going we're gonna to finally launch this healing room and believe God uh, to heal. So um, if you're here to go through that training tonight with Joanne, it's hard to see her. Raise your hand, Joanne. Have your husband, Dick, raise his hand because you can see him better. Anyway, they're going to be doing it. So uh, Joanne, why don't you and Dick walk back that way where they can see you. And if you're going with them right out that door, go ahead and follow them out. And God bless you and in the healing room. It's going to be good. And give them a hand, everybody. That's great. All right, let's all stand, the rest of us that are still seated. And we're going to pray over this. And let me just say, uh, I said I was going to take two weeks to do this. Well, that was before I saw a stack of questions. And um, they're still coming in. So we're just going to flow with this. I'm going to see how it goes. We're going to flow with this. And where's Brendan? He already go out? Okay. So I I picked the questions that I felt. uh, Here's my burden. I want all of you to be confident in your Bible. I mean, where you can go out and just face any atheist and say, you know what? The Word of God is true. And so... The Bible talks about little foxes that spoil the vineyard. And it's, it's the message is little things can mess up big things. And it can be one little question that hangs you up in your faith where you don't have the confidence that you ought to have. And so I'm trying to pick questions that I know are pretty universally felt. There's no way I could get to all of them tonight. I'm tackling a couple of biggies tonight or ones that, I, that I've been asked through the years, but it's not all. Uh, next week, there's going to be more. And um, then if they keep coming in, we might go a third. I'm going to go as long as you guys have questions and you want to come and, and get an answer. And I go to the God with the question, say, God, help me answer this. And then you know where I get the answer? From the Bible. Because the Bible answers questions about itself. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you right now. For the Word of God tonight and how we are embarking on this question and answer time so that, Lord, these little foxes that get into our faith and that, uh, Lord, weaken it and cause confusion and doubt and timidity in the face of um, unbelief and hostility, we pray that you will remove those little foxes that fly in the ointment those questions that have been affecting us. Lord, clear the fog and help us to be bold as a lion with our faith. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn to your neighbor and tell them there's an answer for you. (laughs) You know, I sat down with the questions this week. And I went through them, and I went through them. There was more, and there more. And there was more on my desk just now when I got here. So we're going to try to do this now. Again, universal ones. This one is not first in priority. I just picked it because I know a lot of people wonder this. Why are there so many different religions? Anybody ever wonder that? And how can we say we got the true one? We got the true one. Well... Here's the answer. Keep in mind that religion is man's attempt, his best attempt, to reach God. That's what religion always is. It's man's best attempt to reach God. But Christianity is different. Christianity is God's major attempt to reach man. He so loved the world, he gave not a prophet, 
Not money, not a good teacher or a good man. His only begotten Son. All right? So God gave His very best to reach you and me. And it's like I often say, uh, the way to salvation is a bridge made of two pieces of wood. It's a two-plank bridge. The cross reaches up towards heaven. Well, first it's this way. And what is it doing there? It's God reaching out to man. Aren't you glad he reached out to you and reached out in the pit you were in and pulled you out? But then once he's got you, he takes you this way. He takes your hand and God's hand and joins them. And that's called reconciliation. Now that's Christianity. Christianity is not a religion, though the world calls it that. It's a relationship. It's a person. It's not an ideology. It's not a philosophy. It's not a worldview. It's a person. So when you look at the Bible and man's best attempt or strongest attempt to reach God, it really began with good old Cain. And the Bible says, look what Cain did. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the, of, of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Now, look what Cain brought, an offering of the fruit of the ground. But Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected or recognized or honored his offering, Abel's offering. But look what happened with Cain. He didn't respect Cain or his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. And because he didn't deal with what happened to him on the inside right then and there, he killed. His murder begins here before it ever happens out here. And what, why did God not receive? Because Cain meant well. He brought him, he was, he was a farmer. He brought him of the fruit of his labor. So what was wrong with that? Because he didn't do it God's way. God had taught the first couple, sin is only eradicated by blood. It says when Adam and Eve sinned and God came to them and they hid because they were ashamed, what did God do? God took an animal's life and covered them. There was a blood offering. And so God had taught the first couple early on, if you're going to be forgiven, it's going to have to be by a blood offering. What was he doing? He was pointing down the tunnel of time immediately, right there in the dawning of that ancient garden. He was pointing down the tunnel of time the day that his son would stretch out his hands and his feet and they would nail him to a tree and he would spill his perfect blood. And that's the only way we're ever going to be forgiven. Freud can't take care of your guilt. Jung, psychology, can't take care of your guilt. You can suppress it, you can bury it, you can talk, try to talk yourself out of it, but why is everybody drinking, snorting, shooting, smoking, everything in the world? What, what is it with the human race that they've got to numb themselves because they can't get rid of the guilt? Only the blood can. And so Cain was the first, we could say, religionist. I'm going to come my way. Abel was obeying what he'd been taught by his parents by making an offering of blood. But Cain, on the other hand, approached God his own way. His philosophy was Sinatra's philosophy. I did it my way. His offering wasn't accepted as it was not a blood offering. All religions, apart from Christianity, are doing the same thing. Exactly the same thing. Approaching God on their own terms, their own way. And, and that's it. They won't come God's way because we don't like that cross. We don't like that bloody cross. We don't like what that cross requires, which is to admit or to agree with God that we are in sin. We don't like it. So we avoid it. Well, I'm going to go this way and that, and I'm going to offer my own vegetable offering. But God is not a vegetarian. <laughs> All right. So we would have to say that the many different religions spring from the desire to approach God on our own terms. That's what it is. In our own way, in a manner that we find personally acceptable. That's 
I like going to God my way, but your way won't get you there. Your best idea won't get you there. Your sincerest efforts won't get you there. Only by the blood and the blood God called for, the blood of his son. Only then are you going to experience the touch of the Holy Spirit, a born-again nature. Only then. That's it. So is it narrow? Yes. Is it a narrow way? You better believe it. Is it exclusive? Very. Is Jesus totally unique in history? There's none like him. Not even close. So there you have religion. Now look what God says. There is salvation in no one else. Talking about Jesus. Let's read that together. There is salvation in no one else. No one. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must, not can, but must be saved. Well, it doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? So if you go out there and you talk to people about Jesus and they say, well, there's many ways. They say, no, there's not. No, there's not. There's only one way, and I'm sorry that that doesn't fit your uh, particulars, but there's only one way. Now, here's another question. Is there a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? I thought that was a thoughtful question. Now, here's the answer. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. The phrase kingdom of God occurs 68 times in 10 different New Testament books, while kingdom of heaven occurs 32 times, and guess what? Only in Matthew. Only in Matthew do you read kingdom of heaven. The rest of the time is kingdom of God. Now, while some believe the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are referring to different things, it's clear that both phrases are referring to the same thing. For example, speaking to the rich young ruler, Jesus uses kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God interchangeably. Watch this. He says in Matthew 19, 23, Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Enter where? The kingdom of heaven. In the very next verse, Jesus says, Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter where? The kingdom of God. So there, in, in two passages, in one conversation with, with, uh, one, with the disciples, in one spot, one context, Jesus says, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, interchangeably, the same. He makes no distinction between the two terms, but seems to consider them anonymous. Now, I have to tell you, though, the phrase kingdom of God is also used to refer to the condition that Christians are supposed to experience on the inside. I like to put it this way. Kingdom of God can be talking about a condition while the kingdom of heaven is talking about a place. They are used interchangeably. But look what it says about the kingdom of God. When he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would, would come, Jesus answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, Well, there it is here, and, or there it is over there. In other words, you can't see it with your natural eye, but the kingdom of God is within you. Now that's talking about a condition. Now this clarifies it even more. Paul wrote, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. In other words, rules and regulations. But what is it? It is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. The kingdom of heaven can be about a place, and so can the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God also refers to a condition that we're supposed to be walking in. Think about this. Every day, we ought to be walking in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost every day. That's the inheritance of Christians. So while the two are synonymous in answer to the question, the kingdom of God can also point to the richness of Jesus dwelling within. Let me ask you a question tonight. Does that describe you on, on a daily basis? Or does it kind of happen by accident sometimes? Or do you feel that way when you've been to church and by the time Monday rolls around, you're back in the doldrums? See, God wants us every day to focus on him. 
and say, Lord, not only am I headed to a place, kingdom of heaven, I'm going to go there someday, but I have got a condition on the inside of me, and it's called the kingdom of God. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Joy. You know what that means? Hilarity. I mean, how often do you laugh hilariously? You feel so joyful. Some of you, we would all faint if you laughed. You look like you were baptized in pickle juice, and and people look at you, and they don't want your religion. Do you know that the greatest billboard God has is your face? That's why I tell people when they leave our church on Saturday night or Sunday morning, I know that a lot of them are going to a restaurant. If you're going to go in there all sour and angry and snap at them, don't tell them you were here. If you're going to go in there and smile and act joyful and be joyful and let your Christianity show and come out of the closet, tell them you were at turning point. Because you are the best advertising for Jesus there is. You're the only Jesus some people are ever going to see. Isn't that an amazing thought? All right, here's a question. Who were the people that arose from the dead and came walking into the streets of Jerusalem after Jesus' resurrection? A lot of people miss this. And I gotta, I'm, sometime I'm going to preach an Easter message on this. Because I want you to read with me what happened. Jesus died and then Jesus rose from the dead. And look what happened. Matthew 27, 51 through 53 says, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. There was an earthquake, and the rocks split, and tombs were open. Now, now we're moving on Spielberg territory here, or really I should say Stephen King. Don't go watch any of his stuff, but you know what I mean. The earth shook, the rocks split, and look what happened. Tombs broke open, but it didn't stop there. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. There was a mass resurrection at the local Jerusalem graveyard. Have you ever caught that? Look what happened. <laughs> this is, I don't know what they looked like. They've been down there a long time. You say, who were they? We don't know, but we can guess. We can, we can surmise. It could have been Adam and Eve. It could have been, because the territory here is the Middle East, of course, Jerusalem. It could have been Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. It could have been any of the minor prophets. It says they were holy. So whoever they were, they died in faith. And Hebrews talks about people who died in faith, not having received the promise, God having, received, or God having prepared a better thing for us, that they without us would not be made perfect. In other words, they died in faith waiting for the fulfillment of the new covenant, the spilling of the blood of the Lamb. They died in faith that it was coming. The Old Testament looks forward to the cross. The New Testament looks backward to the cross. But the cross is the center of history. Not the first nuclear bomb. Not Hiroshima. Not some other historic event that, that, is, that is branded on our minds. The, the defining moment of history was the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Right there. And, and so... These people, these holy Old Testament saints, died in faith, looking down the tunnel of time through the prophetic eye and the promises of the prophets, and they said, well, we didn't get to see him. We didn't get to hear him, but we know that he's coming. And so we're dying in faith. It's some of those that came out. Now, folks, they were totally decayed. I mean, I'm trying to activate your sanctified imagination here a minute. They were decayed. They were, some of them were dust. So what we're seeing here is a dress rehearsal. Right? We're seeing a dress rehearsal for what Jesus can do and will do when the trumpet blows and the dead in Christ rise first. It doesn't matter if you were ashes. It doesn't matter if you've been in there a week or a century. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection 
and went into the holy city and said, hey. I want you to think about that. You've been, I can see Isaiah, you've been reading my stuff in the synagogues. I mean, I'm, I'm being serious now. No getting around what the Bible is claiming here. Many long dead were raised from the dead. Somebody said, when Jesus said it is finished, they got up. They began to stir. But when the Holy Ghost moved into his tomb and a man who had been dead three days and nights sat up and said, good morning, and walked out of the tomb, the resurrected Savior, the resurrection power of God just went out and went into that graveyard and pulled them up. Now, this event occurred as a testimony to the immortal power ascribed to Jesus Christ alone. 1 Timothy 6.14 says that Christ alone has the power of immortality. He is the only one who can give you eternal life. Jesus is the only one that can make you and me immortal with life. So the resurrection is the cornerstone of Christianity. You take the resurrection away, we might as well all go home. There is no Christianity. All other religions and their respective leaders do not serve a risen Lord. Muhammad's still in the grave. Buddha is ashes. Confucius is long gone. But Jesus got up again. And it's never been disproven. Not ever. So by overcoming death, Jesus Christ immediately receives precedence because he came back to life when everyone else did not. The resurrection has given us a reason to tell other people about him and place trust in God. Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, the resurrection chapter. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. But since he is risen, we do not have empty faith, useless faith. Stupid faith, silly faith, wasted faith. The resurrection has given us assurance that our sins are forgiven. Verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If he's not risen, you're still in your sins. But Paul clearly says in this verse that no resurrection means zero forgiveness. But we also know that he is risen from the dead. So we are forgiven. And finally, the resurrection has given us a reason to have hope today. Well, I'll tell you, hope is in short supply out there, folks. Hope is on the endangered species list. There's a lot of hopeless people. I read this week of this poor policeman in Chicago with this horrible, demonic murder, uh, just this this baptism and murder that's been happening in Chicago. They, so many murders every week. Finally, this cop had seen the last murder he could, he could face. He said, it's too much. He went home. He called his family, and he said, I've decided to die. He hung up. He took his own life. He was a police officer. He said, I can't take what I'm seeing anymore. You know what happened to him? He lost his hope. You, you can live without a lot of things, but you cannot live without hope. Hope is like oxygen to the soul. You've got to have hope. And the Bible says that our God is a God of hope. He's the God of hope. He inspires hope. He ignites hope. And you know what we got the most to be hopeful about? Jesus did rise from the dead. And so that's, that gives us hope. All right, the fact is that God did raise Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification, Romans 4. So the raising of these Old Testament saints relates directly to the coming kingdom. What happened in microcosm is going to happen in macrocosm soon. The raising of a few, and look, I noticed this, it occurred to me, the raising of a few and not all of the saints shows that Jesus has power to resurrect selectively. Jesus said, one will be in the field, two will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two will be in bed, one will be taken, one will be left. He, he knows those who are his. They're marked 
by the Holy Spirit. And so he selectively resurrects. If you're alive at the coming of the Lord, he knows those that are his. You're going to be walking down the street, driving in a car, wherever you're going to be. He's, he knows those that are his, and you'll be resurrected up. But if you're in the tomb, he also knows when you died, if you had the blood on your soul, the blood of Jesus, and he'll selectively resurrect. It points to the second coming and judgment of Jesus Christ, which will include those whose names are written in the book of life by faith in the grace of God. Knowing that Jesus has died and conquered death for his resurrection ought to hasten our desire to repent and trust him and him alone for salvation. So we too can one day be resurrected in the twinkling of an eye. Amen? Uh Uh-oh. How many of you like country music? How many of you like rock and roll? What? I've seen some people with silver hair. Rock and roll. Why? Okay. I got this question. It's a good one. What is your thought on being a Christian and listening to secular music? I'm going to bypass that and go to the next question. No. Here we go. I want to be careful to avoid legalism here. I really mean that. There is much music out there that is non-religious but beautiful. For instance, we'd be remiss to dismiss all the classical music from the great composers. I know this week many of you listened to Bach, right? Or Beethoven, right? It was on your top 40 list. Come on. But seriously, a lot of it isn't religious per se, but it's beautiful, ingenious music. And there are huge volumes of secular music about the uh, themes of love, life, relationships, and so forth that are not necessarily wrong or godless right? Let's be honest here. I believe it's wise when listening to a song to not just hear the beats and bob your head to the rhythm without thinking of what you're listening to, okay? Because there is no more powerful vehicle for communication than music because we are drawn to that sound and it can just captivate you. But within that sound, There can be either a good message or a bad one. And I'm going to tell you, getting some people's godless music away from them, you'd have better luck trying to pull their wisdom tooth with no Novocaine. Because they're hooked. Music can be incredibly seductive. The music itself can draw us into a song that has a distinctly immoral, lewd, godless or even satanic message? Can anybody say Lady Gaga? Or we can name them. And we won't even talk about rap, which is non-music that passes for music. I'm going to get some of you mad at me. I just saw a few of you right then and there when I said rap. rap. And and what is it? They got to drive down the road with all the windows down. I can feel the bass vibrating my house when they go by. It's like, dude, do you want to hear when you're 30? All right. So here's what I would say to it. Rather than picking out artists and talking about different ones, let's just look at an overall principle. Take a moment to listen to the lyrics and understand what that song is about. Keep in mind what Philippians 4, verse 8 says. Now, this is a powerful verse, Here's, and it's a command. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, as we read this, watch how in your mind some of your songs are losing their validation with every word. Watch this. If it's true, if it's noble, if it's just, if it's pure, if it's lovely, if you can go give a good godly report about it, if it has any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Listen to these things. That passage right there can serve as as a sifter of the music that's out there. This isn't hard. If we're honest with ourselves, we should be able to pretty quickly remove objectionable music from our lives. When I got saved and spirit-filled, 
I was uh, saved at 16. I had a powerful experience with the Holy Spirit when I was 18. Got called to ministry. I had stacks of worldly music, albums. Now, we had albums back then. I'm going to date myself here. We had albums, LPs, long playing. And I'll never forget getting my first eight track in Inagata de Vida. Some of you remember that. Okay. Iron Butterfly. Okay. Now, the rest of you, God bless you. You don't know. You're not missing a thing. But, but if you had your eight track in your car, man, you were in, especially if you had Inagata de Vida blasting out the windows. But when I got saved, God began immediately to deal with the things that were influencing me. And music really influenced me. I have a sensitive soul. And it's easy for me to get inspired, emotional, drawn, passionate about something. Music had a real pull. And music was instrumental in my decline in the drug culture. Instrumental. The Beatles sang me there. The Rolling Stones encouraged me to go that way. I could start naming the groups that, that helped me go down that dark road. And music was the Pied Piper that just really lit the way for me. So when I came to the Lord, he began to deal with the things that were really influencing me. And I knew I had to get rid of this music. Now, it's just me, but I had to get rid of this music. Full of immorality, drugs, uh, dis blasphemy. And it's way worse now. Some of the stuff that I know is out there now. Now, we must allow Scripture to determine where we draw the line. Can we agree on that? So if the Bible can amen what you're listening to, listen away. The main thing is to remember that our minds are to be protected and our souls guarded from worldly philosophies and influences, and the stream of the world is flowing downward, and we as believers are swimming against the tide. I had somebody come up to me a couple of weeks ago, a, a young lady crying, really crying and all upset, convicted during the service, and she said, Pastor Jeff, she said, I need to ask your advice about something. Okay, what, you, what is it? She said, I am hooked on listening to Howard Stern. And she said, I, it's not that I like everything that he says, but it's just like, you know, I've listened for so long that he's like an old friend, and I just, I just want to just, that's just one of the ways that I kind of wake myself up. And I said, oh, boy, waking up to Howard Stern. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but I understand. I get it. Because I know how these things can get into your soul. So I said, you need to, just, need to ask the Lord Jesus, greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. You've got to start listening to the shepherd of your soul instead of an influence like that. And you know what? I, I understood the battle because I loved my music. So I would advise caution in the music you choose, keeping in mind that the music you listen to always reflects the lifestyles of the musicians singing it. They don't get up there and sing about something they don't live. So if they're singing immorality and blasphemy or godless or just, just, just a sort of a flippant, you know, I'm not really concerned about eternity and, you know, I don't think about God and, or Jesus. I just live life and do my thing and smoke the weed and, you know, I, I go to bed with who I want and that's the way I live and that's okay. And if you don't agree, you're just wrong because afterward, because I'm cool. And you know how, how much cool messes people up? I know what the pull is with cool. If somebody seems cool, we want to gravitate to them and believe what they do. Listen, Jesus was cool. Jesus was cool. You say, well, how was he cool? He was always calm, collected, cool. As Paul said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So if your music can help you have your mind renewed, listen away. But if your music is going against what God is trying to do in your life, in your morals, your values, and whatnot, then you're going to have to come to have a come to Jesus meeting about your music. Go to Jesus about it. I'm moving right along. <laughs> now look at this one. If we all came from Adam and Eve, where did the different races come from? You thought that that last one was tough. Here we go. First of all, do you know the Bible never used the term race? Just want to sow that seed. The Bible never used the term race. It does, however, speak of different people groups. According to Scripture, though the first human beings were Adam and Eve, we all eventually came from Noah's family. All right? About 1,400 years after the creation of the first human beings, God wiped the world out with a great flood. Everything in it died but two of every species, including, well, there was more than two humans, but every animal, every bird, everything, two of each kind. You know the story. And after the flood subsided and Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth and their wives got off the ark, they were the only ones on the planet. They were it. You talk about room to play. I mean, it was there. Now, what this does, this bases the current world's population on the descendants of, free, of, of uh, three families. The division of the world's population several hundred years later, several hundred years later, what happened? Nimrod, a descendant of Cain, rebelled against God, gathered many of the, the population of earth at that time around himself and said, we're going to build a tower. And it's going to reach all the way to the heavens. And you know the story. It says God finally looked down and said, we're going to have to stop this or they will succeed. Now, he didn't mean they're going to succeed building a tower all the way to heaven. What he meant was, see, God had told these early people, uh, Adam's or, or rather Noah's children, their wives, he had said, you've got to spread out and repopulate the earth. I don't want you in one place. I want you to spread out all over the earth and repopulate the earth. But Nimrod led a rebellion and said, no, we're going to stay in one centralized location and we're going to build this tower. And it was a direct rebellion against the command of God to spread out. He said, no, we're going to be right here. And he led a rebellion against the will of God. So God said, if we don't stop them, he's going to solidify this movement where they won't spread out. So what did God do? He confused their language so that all of a sudden, and you would go, what? Nobody can understand each other. It had to be freaky. All of a sudden, what, what, what? So what did they do? They had to spread out. They had to find people who were speaking their language. Follow me. We don't know how many languages God gave them at that moment. But he confused the languages so that they were broken up according to language. And so they found the people who were speaking the same language and they hung with them. The division of the world's population several hundred years later through the confusion of tongues at Babel ultimately provided the basis for the current world's nations and races. With the division of the peoples of the earth at Babel, we have a limiting, watch this, this is science time, we have a limiting of the gene pool. Because the ones who spoke the same language went off together and Lord knows how many of them went off in, in groups and spread out throughout the earth and did what God had said by force. And so evidently God divided the world's population into quite a number of languages, effectively cutting off certain genetic possibilities for each group. And through the generations, purifying certain traits through the marriage of related individuals. We're talking simple 
genetics. This would have the same effect as modern dog or horse breeding, where selection of mates removes certain traits from the available gene pool while highlighting other traits. Let me give you an example. You know I love dogs. Originally, there was a first dog. God said, let there be, and there was a male and a female dog. We don't know what kind it was. I think it was a Yorkie, but you can think what you want. But there was, and some of you men are, oh, that was a German shepherd. What's the matter with you? But watch this now. There was an original dog. How many of you can say, okay, I agree with that. There had to be an original dog. Then let me ask you, where in the world did they all come? Chihuahuas, Yorkies, you name, I mean, Irish setters, German shepherds, Doberman pinchers. Where did all of the variety come from? Genetics. But you know what? You get a little teeny chihuahua and you get a great big Doberman pincher or German shepherd, they are still dogs. They bark. They have the same internal makeup. The species remains the same. So we're not talking about... So there was an original... Two people, Adam and Eve, and then Noah, Ham, Shem, Japheth, and their wives. Then where did all this variety come from? The same way there's all kinds of different looking dogs, horses, you name it, birds, fishes of the sea. It's all genetics. Originally, all of today's racial characteristics were found in Adam and Eve as well as in Noah. God, the genetics within us have an infinite possibility of variety. Each race or people group today represents only a small number of the genetic possibilities which were originally created. Now, through the years, as certain traits like skin pigmentation, hair type, and soft tissue characteristics became unique to various basic groups of peoples, these peoples settled into their respective areas of the earth as they were scattered and fathered more tribes and nations so that today many nations are found with similar racial characteristics. But all human, homo sapien, Not from gorillas. Now, let me just show you. As, as you move closer to the equator, we typically find uh, that people have more melanin in their skin. Well, what's melanin? Melanin is also what we call pigment. And it's a substance that gives the skin and hair its natural color. Uh, it also gives color to the iris of the eyes feathers of a bird, scales on a fish. In humans, those with darker skin have higher amounts of melanin. That's it. I don't have much melanin, comparatively. Robert, stand up over there. Robert has a lot of melanin. Okay. <laughs> okay. But, you know, it's just melanin. It's pigment. By contrast, those with less pigment have lighter or fairer skin coloring. Now, this additional skin pigmentation provides added protection against skin cancer, which is more likely as one moves toward the equator where the sun's intensity is strongest. It's been suggested that here we have a true example of natural selection. Now, I'm not talking about Darwinian evolution. I'm talking about natural selection. What is natural selection? You remember this from school, I hope. Natural selection is simply a natural process that results in the survival and reproductive success of different species best adjusted to their environment and that leads to the perpetuation of genetic qualities best suited to that particular environment. So natural selection is simply God building into his creation 
the ability to adapt to an environment. It's that simple. It's likely that God moved those people with more pigmentation to settle in the sunnier reaches of the earth, thus providing for their needs in this way. And at the same time, since less pigmentation was needed in the colder climates, it appears that God led people who had little pigmentation to settle in these climates. Of course, this is way back then, because now it's all intermixed and intermingled. But way back then, this is how it happened. And so adaptation to environment happened. Very simple. Interracial marriages represent a recombining of some of the racial characteristics found in our first parents and an increase in the possible features which may be evident in children produced by such marriages. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, what do you think about racial marriage? I don't see anything in Scripture against racial marriage. You say, well, Pastor Jeff, yes, it, yes, it does. It says that we shouldn't intermingle. That's talking about faith with non-faith. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, I hear it. I feel it. Well, that's not the way I was raised. You were raised wrong. <laughs> oh, boy. I hope somebody's here next week, Kathy. Uh, we've, we've taken care of a little girl uh, since she was a little baby a lot. We've, we never adopted her, but we, she's, her daddy was African-American, her mother uh, Caucasian, and she's just the most beautiful little girl. She's beautiful. God's not against that. What God's against is be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. You go out as a Christian and you marry an unbeliever, you are just doing a recipe for trouble, conflict, and the Bible specifically uh, forbids it. What about the Old Testament people? They were told not to intermingle. They were told not to intermingle with pagan thought systems. You poke an African-American with a needle, a Chinese with a needle, an Indian with a needle, and a Caucasian with a needle, and out of every one of them, believe it or not, comes red blood. So, with our modern knowledge of genetics, the modern people groups certainly make sense in light of the scriptural history of man. Now, another feature which shows that all human beings are descended from one source is our emotional nature. You want to know how alike we are, no matter what color the pigment might be? Although we have many different varied cultures and traditions, human emotional needs are identical. We all desire to be loved, and we desire to be loved. Likewise, sin has had the same effect on these and all our other desires, affecting our behaviors in like fashion, despite our different cultures. We're all sinners. Remember hearing Billy Graham say, no matter where I go in the world, people are always the same. So it's not skin. That's why racism is truly a level of lunacy. Because, no, let me just finish. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to gain points here. I'm telling you. Because there's no different. It's just pigments. Human beings are all the same. Do you know that Moses married a black woman and, that, and his brother and sister got onto him for it and God gave him leprosy for judging him? I don't want leprosy. He married a Cushite woman. That's a dark-skinned woman. And here came Aaron and Miriam. What do you think you're doing? And Moses, before he could even really do much or say much, they were covered in leprosy. I'm going to leave it right there. <laughs> oh, boy. Almost 3,000 years ago, Solomon wrote that despite his wealth, status, power, and reputation, life was empty. Doesn't matter what color your skin is, how rich you are, how smart you are. We're all in the same boat. We are born with a fallen nature. And Solomon really modeled this better than almost, well, anyone in history. He had it all. 
But he said he finally learned that the only way in which there is meaning is in God. Solomon was right. Life is empty without our Creator. When you think of facing our Creator, (laughs) when you think about it, we tremble, knowing that we've made ourselves less than He has made us to be, and He invites us to take to heart the truth that the Son of God became one of us to restore us to our Creator through the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want to finish with this one. Everybody okay? So you're not getting to the pot tonight? The marijuana. I wonder, where'd Brendan? Brendan has on a shirt that looked like a marijuana plant. And I was asking him, did you wear that on purpose? Because they thought I might be talking about it tonight. Because I got a question that I'm dealing with next week. You're going to have to be patient with me. I'm dealing with these questions. You can tell these aren't easy questions. The question is, since God made it, why can't I smoke it? Seriously, I'm not, hey. And since it's about to be legal, what would be wrong with that? So tune in next week. Like I told the Sunday church group, I said, one thing we will never have is a place in the parking lot for those of you that want to light up a joint and have a toke or two before you come in and praise the Lord. (laughs) I'm having fun tonight. All right. (laughs) Why are there contradictions in the Bible? And of course, my clicker's not working. Can you help me there, Terry? because I'm fine. There it goes. Here's the answer. Why are there contradictions in the Bible? Well, I'm going to tell you, I dealt with this early on, and my clicker's falling apart. That's why it's not working. Um, Early on, (laughs) people listening on radio are not going to know what is going on here. But um, I was born into a family that um, my dad had a genius IQ. He was in Mensa, which is a kind of a club for genius IQs. And I got peppered when I got saved with really thoughtful questions. My parents divorced. He married a woman who was also a member of Mensa. And so I came bopping into our living room after I'd met the Lord and had been filled with the Spirit, and I was all excited, and I began to talk about Jesus, and boy, I was met with a huge brick wall and questions that made me walk out of there wondering if my experience was even real. One of them was... There's contradictions in the Bible, Jeff. You ought to know there's contradictions in the Bible. It's not accurate. Well, while it seems, I've learned this now through the years. I had to find out. While it seems, there's contradictions. One discovers when you really seek the truth out that the Bible is a beautiful, seamless volume of 66 books that do not contradict. As a matter of fact, one of the miracles of the Bible is all the different authors and all the different books, but they all agree. And they, and they did not consort with one another. And yet they all agree. Written over centuries and centuries of time. The writers, all different backgrounds. And yet they all agree. It's proof that it's a supernatural book. It's the most amazing book on earth. For instance, many have felt... Let me give you an example. This is what I was hit with... Um, that night. Many have felt that there are two contradicting creation accounts in Genesis. I don't know if you've ever been hit with that one. If you ever start witnessing in colleges or whatever, you're going to get this. Now here's the answer. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But later in Genesis 2.4, it seems that a second, different story of creation begins. The idea of two differing Creation accounts is a common misinterpretation of these two passages, which in fact describe the same creation event. But I've had 
sort of thinking type people hit me with this way more than once. Your Bible contradicts. It's not accurate. It's confused. Well, is it? Now, these two accounts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 do not disagree as to the order in which things were created, and they do not contradict one another. Genesis 1 describes the, quote, six days of creation and a seventh day of rest. Genesis 2 covers only one day of that creation week, the sixth day. And there's no contradiction. So Genesis 1 is talking about all the days, ending with the seventh one where there is rest. But Genesis 2 homes in on, pulls in tight on one day, the day we were made. In Genesis 2, the author steps back in the temporal sequence to the sixth day when God made man. In the first chapter, the author of Genesis presents the creation of man on the sixth day as the culmination or high point of creation. Genesis 1 shows you and I as, as the high point of the creation of God, and we were. It's the only thing he created, the only creature he created where he bowed down and, and you hear the words, let us make man. And the whole Godhead, you can see the whole Godhead in the plural the us coming together to fashion you and me. That's why David said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, not fearfully and wonderfully evolved. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So the high point in Genesis 1 is, is you and me being made. But then in the second chapter, the author gives greater detail regarding the creation of man. There are two primary claims of contradictions between Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The first is in regard to plant life. Genesis 1.11 records God creating vegetation on which day? The third day. That's when he made vegetation. All the botany, all the botanical creation of God. Now, Genesis 2.5 states that prior to the creation of man, uh-oh, look what it says. Quote, no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth. And no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. Now, Genesis 1 says it was made on the third day. But Genesis 2 says it's made on the sixth day when man was made. So people say, see? So which is it? Did God create vegetation on the third day before he created man, according to Genesis 1? Or after he created man, Genesis 2? The answer is found, if you really are looking for truth, it's found in the original Hebrew language in which it was written. Let me explain. The Hebrew words for vegetation are different in the two passages. Two different words, though they're translated the same. Genesis 1.11 uses a term that refers to vegetation in general, all botanic life. But Genesis 2.5 uses a more specific term that refers to vegetation that requires agriculture, meaning a person to tend it, a gardener, a farmer. It's two different Hebrew words. The passages do not contradict. Genesis 1.11 speaks of God creating vegetation, but Genesis 2.5 speaks of God not causing farmable vegetation to grow until he had a man to work it. And do you see with me that God immediately gave man a job? <clears throat> so, I could go off on that one. But, but God gave man a job. That's why, let me move on. Because I, I, we're pressed for time here. Now, I show you this to show you that while some have said, well, then there's contradictions. That's a great example of people who don't bother to investigate. And they come out saying it, it contradicts, but it doesn't. And there's myriad examples like that one 
where people have said it contradicts, but when you investigate it, you find that it does not. It's a beautiful 66-book volume that agrees. And you can stand on it. You can walk on it. You can trust it. You can claim it. You can put your faith in its promises. It's good, that holy Bible in your hand. So can we stand up together tonight? And let me go, that's next week. Since God made it, can I, can't I smoke it? And other intriguing questions. <laughs> we, ought to, we ought to be so full next week that we have to open up the overflow room. And we're going to give an altar call for all of you to bring the pot down and just drop it right here. All right, let's thank God for his beautiful book. Lord, we just thank you for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that we are all of one blood. We thank you, Lord, that we're all equal at the foot of the cross. We thank you, Lord, that your scripture is trustworthy. And we pray that you will ground us and found us in it so that we can take the gospel with boldness to a dying world and not be ashamed. Can you just lift your hands to the Lord tonight and let's thank him for his goodness.